Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out yet again. We really, really love having you. Again, my name is Jerry Riandel, and I am on staff with Crew. Well, hey, how's it going, man? Um, yeah, and uh, I want to just, uh, well, first of all, I want you guys to know that I mentioned this last week, but I really mean it. I would love to hang out with any of you uh, who have any questions about anything going on here, who would just like to get to know me better, or if you're just bored and you want to talk to someone at some point, I'd love to hang out. Um, I'm putting my phone number up on the screen here. Ignore the second part there, questions. And if you do, just text me and let me know a couple of times. It might work for you. A bunch of you guys, and I'm looking at you guys over here, have said you want to hang out with me, and you haven't texted me yet and told me when you can hang out. So make sure you do that, guys. Uh, I really would love to connect, hear your story, answer any questions you have. So please do that. Um, did, did you mention the Q&A? No, okay, great. So there's a phone number over here that's different than that phone number, you may notice. And if you have any questions during this evening's talk, text the phone number that's over here. And a, a two or three of the questions based on time that we have left will be asked. All right, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of James. And this is the point of the talk, that, or the, talk the point in the, uh, the, the evening where we open the Bible and we ask of the Bible, how should we live? What should we believe as a result? And we're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. But before we get there, I want to double click on two things you guys already heard. You heard from the Wilsons uh, earlier. That was, that was Donnie who was down here about an opportunity in the summer. One thing that he didn't mention that would be a really great advantage to spending your summer with him in Gatlinburg is that you get to hang out with the Wilsons all summer. And they are awesome people. And their, their little son, Tommy, who's really great as well. And so I, I, I couldn't encourage you more to consider investing your summer, uh, hanging out with the Wilsons and uh, going on that, that having, having the, all the training and everything that comes along with the summer mission, the ministry opportunities. The second thing is something that we didn't mention about PCB, though that was a wonderful uh, uh, promo for PCB. Um, and the only thing we didn't mention is that you could meet your spouse at PCB. Throw up a little picture here. So this is my sophomore year in college when I went to PCB as a sophomore in college. And if you look carefully in the back row, kind of over there, a little higher, higher, uh, uh, no, to the right, other way, other way, there, 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 there. That's me, and that's my beautiful wife on my back, on my shoulders, right? And here's the really funny thing. I, okay, so here's how this picture was introduced. They said, all right, group picture time. Girls get in the tall guy's shoulders. I recognized that I was tall, and I looked around. There, was a, there were a bunch of us there, and so I didn't know everyone who was coming from Virginia Tech. I was a Virginia Tech guy at the time. Uh, and I said, uh, this, this girl was here like, hey, you can get on my shoulders. She climbed on my shoulders. I didn't know her name. We took the picture. She climbed off, and uh, I married her like eight years later or six years later or something like that. We got married a little while after college. But we didn't, she remembers that event too, but she didn't know it was me and I didn't know it was her until years later after we started dating, we were looking at our pictures in common on Facebook and this is the first one and she was on my shoulder. So you can totally meet your spouse. But here's the deal, you won't know it happened necessarily right away, right? I didn't find out I was going to marry this girl until like, we didn't even start dating until like six years later after college. So it's, it's a long-term investment, but it's worth your time. And, and I'm going to be there with my family. My wife will be there, our three kids. And we would love to spend the week with you guys on the beach learning about Jesus. And so consider coming 
with us to PCB. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, a detail is the price is going to go up on February 10th, so we want to sign up before then. Okay, that's enough of announcements. Um, we're going to be looking at James 1, 9 through 18, but as a way of getting our brains going about the, uh, the content of this passage, I have two questions I want you to consider. Two questions I want you to consider. If you want to write down the answers, you can, but I want you to try, try to come up with an answer you can hold in your brain at least while we read the passage. The first question is, when is a time in your life, it could be a moment or like a season in your life, where you felt really significant and important? Really significant and important. This could be, this could be like bad, but it could also be like, you could be like prideful, but it could also be like you were doing really meaningful, significant work, and you recognized that it was important. That made you feel good, right? It could be, it could be a job you had. It could be a uh, time that you were like picked first on the playground on the baseball team or something, right? It doesn't really matter what it is, a time that you you kind of thought, wow, it feels good to be appreciated. I feel important right now, right? Could be a job you could have seniors, you could have just gotten a job offer that you're like, wow, I didn't think I was gonna like get that kind of a job offer, right? You could have been recognized. So a time that you felt significant and important. And then I also want you to think about a time where you felt the opposite of that where you felt very insignificant and unimportant. It could be the time you were picked last for the baseball team, right, in the playground. It could be a time you were passed over for a job. It could be a time where an award was given to someone else that you thought maybe you deserved, right? Able to think of anything? Here's my answer to these questions. Um, a time that I felt really important. Both of these, my answers come from when I was just out of college. I was like 23, 24 years old. I just gotten uh, a, I, my first role with Crew. I was working with Crew, and I wasn't working on a college campus like doing what I'm doing now. I had a really kind of odd, unique role. Uh, I was serving as the assistant to the guy who was the president of Crew at the time, right? And that sounds like a really cool job, and in some ways it was. Um, but the best part of the job. There was a lot of things with the job that were really hard. The best part of the job was I got to travel with him everywhere he went. And this is a big international organization, and so I, like, um, I was traveling like, on airplanes like three times a month, different countries, different states, and um, over time, I accumulated a bunch of like, frequent flyer miles. Uh, and I, I got status on certain airlines, and, and basically, on an airplane, you know, you often airplanes have a first-class section in like the, like the, 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 they call it the economy section now, I used to call it coach. I used to always wonder, who has the money to pay for these first-class seats? Here's a secret. People don't pay for those seats almost ever. It's really rare. Those seats are usually given to people who fly on airplanes enough that the airline wants to kind of reward them, and so they upgrade them into these, these first-class seats, right? And so while, like, all the schmucks are loading up in the back, you get to sit with, like, a cool chalice of a beverage and, like, and you, you, you have a big, you feel like you're like a really, you're really important. And as a 24-year-old, as I started flying a lot and I got upgraded these seats, man, that went straight to my head. And I thought, wow, I must be pretty important. I get to sit way up here in the front, right? And it's silly, and obviously I, I, I recognize that it's just, you know, a marketing ploy. But it, it, it worked. It was a marketing ploy that worked. So that's a time I felt important. A time I felt really unimportant was in the same job. Because as just the assistant, right, like, Every meeting that I was in, I was the least important person in the room, right? I wasn't there as, a like, like as part of the meeting. I was there at best to take notes, but more often to bring coffee, 
right? That was like, that was like my job and meetings I was at, that my boss was in. Um, and there was one meeting in particular that really, that this, normally I was like, I accepted that as the reality, but there was one meeting where it really stung. Uh, so my boss, really wonderful man, a godly man, not manly God, godly man, um, really wonderful guy, also really smart. He got his undergraduate degree in electrical engineering at MIT. He got his MBA at Harvard, like really smart guy. And he was the president of Crew. And he heard about a guy who was involved in Crew in Boston who had done the same thing. He'd gotten his undergrad at MIT and was working on his MBA at Harvard. Obviously another really smart guy who's about my age. And my boss, Steve, reached out to this guy and said, hey, fly down to Orlando. I'm going to try to convince you to work for Crew. And I remember so clearly this meeting between Steve and Brian, both of which wonderful men. They didn't do anything wrong. But in the meeting, I remember Steve was trying, my boss, trying to convince Brian to come work for Crew and telling him how big of a blessing he'd be to the organization and how he'd have these significant opportunities to lead and do important things because of his background. And my job in this meeting was to bring coffee, right? to this guy who was my, my same age. Again, wonderful guy. They didn't do anything wrong. But no one was asking, no one was talking to me the same way, of saying, hey, Jerry, you have this amazing degree from Virginia Tech, not quite MIT, right? And you have no MBA, right? No one was trying to say, hey, Jerry, like, we, th- it would be such a blessing if you came and worked here, and you have such great leadership opportunities. Instead, I was the guy bringing the coffee, right? And I felt about this big, right? pretty insignificant. And so I want you to see if you can hold your memories of a time you felt important, time you felt unimportant, significant, uninsignificant, because James is getting ready to talk to us about, he has something to say very important to people who are experiencing either one of these things. And so open up with me, finally, sorry for that long introduction, to James chapter 1, 9 through 18. It'll be in the screen behind me, and I will read for us. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. All right, well, there is James's words. So as I was preparing for this text, something that I try to do with every text that I I, I work with, I, I present to you guys, is I try to outline the logical flow of the argument that the author is making. And sometimes that's really easy, and sometimes it's the book of James. And it, the book of James, the, James just, he is just so, he bounces around a lot, right? It, 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 if you 
don't pay careful attention. It seems like he's just changing topic every couple, couple lines. And so I really wrestled through this. I think I got his, his line of reasoning, his logic. And I read some commentaries to make sure I was tracking with what other people who've read it thought the same thing. Um, and I'm going to present to you his line of reasoning. I'm going to present it in, in a logical order, but it's not going to be the same order that he presented it in. So we're going to kind of move around the text a little bit. And I'm going to have the part of the text that I'm talking about on the screen behind me so you can track with me. But we're going to follow him logically, not necessarily sequentially. And here's what we're going to see. James spends most of this passage explaining the gospel. And then he spends a small portion of the passage. Actually, he does it this part first, and, but logically it comes last. Explaining the consequence of the gospel for people who are of a high position, who are important, and people who are of a low position, who are unimportant by the world's eyes. And so we're going we're gonna to track with that. But in order to track with it, we have to, we have to understand what he's trying to present with. He's presenting us with the gospel message. Matt Smithhurst, um, a, a JMU alum who's kind of become a well-known author, writes this. If you were to distill the Bible into a single drop, if you were to take this book and try to condense it down to like its very essence and just squeeze out the essence of the Bible, what would come out, what that drop would be, would be the gospel message. It is the story that every story of the Bible points to. It is the central teaching of Christianity. It, is, it has become, there's something that people in our culture will sometimes say. You may have heard it. They'll say, every religion is basically the same. It has the same teachings. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter what religion you pick because they all teach basically the same things. That might have been true if it weren't for the gospel. The gospel is the distinguishing feature that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. It's, it is the reason you can't say that all re religions basically teach the same thing. And James is going to present the gospel to us in three points that I'm going to show us here. In crew, if you've been around us a while, you know we like to present the gospel message in four points. Um, and we made that up. James is in the Bible, and he presents it in three points, so it's probably a better presentation than we often do. But we're going to see how he tracks with it, and he presents it in three points. And so this is how James explains the central teaching of the Bible. He says, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 15 first, and this is when he presents the first point, which is sort of the bad news of the gospel. In verses 13 through 15, he describes something called sin. Now, sin, though it's like a biblical word, a religious word, even if you don't have a background in religion and Christianity, you're familiar with this word. You have a sense of what it means. It means something like you recognize, like bad stuff, things you, should, you do that you shouldn't do, like lying, cheating, stealing, those kinds of things. And that's true. That, that is what sin is. But it's something, James says, even more intense than that. James uses the phrase evil, to describe sin. All right, and that's a sort of a different tier. Like we say like the bad stuff we do and then like evil things, like that's, a, that's like a worse thing we would typically think, right? When we say evil, we're thinking of things like crimes like murder or uh, things like systemic racism, slavery, 
um, all kind of, we, we think of a different level of bad thing. And James says, whatever you think of when you think of the word evil, that is how God thinks about sin. He says something else in this passage. He says that sin is something that you and I are tempted to do. It's something that we are tempted to do. And he uses the word when, not if. He says when you are tempted to sin, when you are tempted to evil, not if. It's something that does happen. Meaning, if you are tempted to do it, that means it's something that at least part of you wants. It's something that at least part of you desires. Worse than that, James tells us where this temptation comes from. He says, don't, when you're tempted to sin, he says, don't blame God, right? I don't know, I don't necessarily know why he's saying that. I don't know why the people he's writing to were blaming God for their temptation. But he says, it's not, it's not God's fault, right? If you hadn't already read the passage and you heard James say, don't blame God when you're tempted, who do you think he's going to tell, tell you you should blame, right? You're probably thinking, all right, don't blame God, blame the devil. It's the devil's fault, right? But that's not what James says, He says, when you experience temptation to do things that are wrong and bad, don't blame God. Blame yourself. Right? In other words, he's saying that these temptation, these desires to do things that are the opposite of how God designed the world and what is good and right is something that comes from within us. These desires to do evil things come from within us. That if you were to look deep into our hearts what you would find there is a factory creating evil desires, sinful desires. This is probably, among human worldviews, one of the most negative perspectives on human nature. Probably one of the most negative perspectives on human nature out there. Um, And it's the consistent perspective of the whole Bible. It is the polar opposite of the message of every Disney movie. Right? I love Disney movies. Cisco, I love Disney movies, man. I know you love him, too. Uh, if you've seen his backpack, he's got Disney pans all over. He, he's, he's, he loves it. I love Disney movies. My favorite one recently, we were just playing the music of, Encanto. Have you guys seen that? It's awesome. It's such a good movie. But here's the core message you haven't noticed of almost every Disney movie, right? What does the main... Actually, someone up here said something funny about this earlier when I said it. Anyways, um, I, I, I won't explain that. Uh, what is, how do you, so, what's the solution to like every Disney movie? It's to look deep inside your heart and follow whatever your heart says, because that's going to be the good thing that's going to fix the problem. And the message of James is, and the whole Bible is actually like the opposite. It says if you, if you like looked inside your heart and followed that, you're going to end up doing something sinful and evil. And that is a negative view. Now, I do want to make it clear, the Bible does teach that because humans are made in the image of God, that, 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 that there is worth and dignity and value to every human being, right? So it's not, it's not to remove that dignity, worth, and value, but it is to admit that our moral compass is absolutely broken because of sin. And this is a negative view, but it's a view that does a better job explaining the world that I see around me than the, the perspective that I see in, in popular culture in Disney, right? It, as I look around and I see the brokenness and the pain in the world around me, this perspective makes far more sense to me. It makes more sense to me than a perspective that says, actually, people are, 
are producers of their hearts only want good things. This makes more sense to me. So that's, God, that's point in the gospel one, that there is this problem that we all have called sin. Oh, and by the way, to make matters worse, worse James says that this problem called sin leads to something. It leads to death. It leads to death. And he's talking here about spiritual death. He's saying that sin has a consequence and it ends up leading to a broken relationship with God, a separation from God. A separation that, by the way, will continue indefinitely unless fixed. But James does present us with a solution and some good news. Verse 12, he describes something better. He describes life. If sin leads to death, he says there is life available. And in fact, it's promised from God and guaranteed by him to all those who love God and are steadfast in that love. In, in kind of common Christian language today, we might call this idea of loving God and being steadfast in that love. We might call that having a relationship with Jesus. There's life that is available in spite of our sin. And here's something interesting. That life that we're offered is external to us. It is something that is put on us. And it's described as a crown that is put on, on you if you have a relationship with, with Christ and with God. It is the thing that comes from within us because of our brokenness leads to death. The thing that is put on us by God leads to life. And the way that it's put on us is the third point. And we'll see this in verses 16 through 18, which will be behind me. It's put on us by grace. It is given. It is not earned. And James acknowledges that this is counterintuitive. This is counterintuitive. This is not how we expect our relationship with God to work. Um, he says to the, his readers, he tells them not to be deceived. And you only tell someone not to be deceived if there's a good chance they're going to be deceived, right? And so he says, it is likely that you don't understand that this is the way God's economy works. The intuitive thing, when I say intuitive, you guys know this means, like, I, I just bought an Apple Watch the other day, and it, it, it broke immediately, actually. I had to go get another one. But the reason people like Apple products is because supposedly they're intuitive, right? You can disagree with that if you're, you know, you're not an Apple user. Supposedly they work the way you would just expect them to work. And James says, God and the relationship he offers does not work the way you would expect that relationship to work. We would expect the way God relates to us to be the same way we relate to every other, every other being, right? And so think about your relationships that you have in life. Whether, this, whether we like this or not, or whether this is a good thing or not, pretty much every relationship we're in is reciprocal. Do you know what I mean by that? It means that you give something in exchange for something else. Now, there are relationships we have that are approaching selfless. Like, theoretically, a relationship like a parent has to a child is theoretically selfless. But, of course, no parent does that perfect. But most relationships we have are reciprocal. If you have friends, to some extent, those friendships came into being because you enjoyed being around those people and they enjoyed being around you. To some extent. Now, hopefully, again, we can be selfless in our friendships to some extent. 
if you have a relationship with a significant other, to some extent, that relationship exists because you really enjoy being around that person. That person really enjoys being around you. And so there's, the problem with reciprocal relationships is they're like fragile, and they're not necessarily secure. And so the more sort of reciprocal the relationship is, like give and take, the more I might be afraid that if I mess up and I become someone people don't want to spend time with, that I might lose those relationships. And there's other relationships that are just purely, uh, ex- uh, what's the word, based on an exchange of, of something, right? So like the University of James Madison loves you, right? As long as you, reach the, you maintain your GPA and you pay the tuition every year, right? And so this is how our world works. And so we expect that's how God will work for us. And James says, don't be deceived. That is not how God's economy works. If you want to have life in a relationship with God, there's only one way, and it's through a gift. And because it's from a gift, it is secure. It is secure. There's no, uh, you did not do anything to earn a relationship with God. And so, therefore, it's not fragile like other relationships might be. And it's not fragile because God, James says, the God who gave it to you is a God who has no variation or shadow due to change. He, he decided to give you a gift of life if you have trusted in Jesus. He's decided to give this to you, and he will never change his mind. If you have a relationship with Jesus, he will never change his mind. Your relationship is secure. You didn't earn it, so you can't unearn it. And finally, we learn right here in these, these verses that this relationship is through Jesus Christ. He says that it is brought forth from the word of truth. If you're familiar with the New Testament, Jesus is always, often, not always, often referred to as the word of God. Jesus brought you this life and this relationship by dying on the cross. It's the supreme irony of the universe. The person who deserved life received death so that we who deserve death because of our sin receive life. And so that's James' three-point outline. There's a problem, it's sin, and that brings death, but there is life that is offered, and it's offered through grace. Have you heard this message? Has this, is this familiar to you? Hopefully you've been part of a crew. Hopefully, yes, this is familiar to you. But this is the core absolute central teaching of the scriptures. And if this is unfamiliar with for you, I would venture to say that Christianity as a whole is unfamiliar to you. And I would like you to know that you can have this kind of relationship with God. James is telling you about it because it is available. And it simply involves recognizing that you are indeed sinful. That the consequence of that is death and, a, and accepting the reality that Jesus has offered you life and receiving that gift. And I I would love to talk to you more about that reality if you have any questions. And then he goes on, and again, this is sequentially is out of order, but I'm trying to tell you the logic of the passage as I see it. And he tells us implications of this message for two groups of people. And we'll go through this very briefly. For, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 11, which will be behind me. Implications for those who are rich and powerful, and implications for those who are poor and lowly. Right? And, and though wealth both in the first century and today, may be the most like, obvious determiner of if someone is powerful or unpowerful. This would work in pretty much any, any sort of power structure you can think of. 
And James is, by the way, James is not talking about sort of generic rich people or generic poor people, generic lofty people, generic lowly people. He's talking about Christians who are in these categories. So he calls them brothers or brothers and sisters because it's a masculine plural, so you can refer to both men and women in the Greek. So these are brothers and sisters who are in these two categories. And I'm going to explain his implications in the reverse order because I'm going to do everything apparently opposite of what James did. But he says to rich Christians that they're supposed to brag about something. They're supposed to brag about what? He says they're supposed to boast about their humiliation. And of course, this is ironic. It's supposed to be ironic. Why would you brag about your humiliation? And why would someone who's rich and exalted be, have humiliation in the first place? Well, James explains part of that. He, says, he, he explains the gospel brings humility even to the powerful in this world who receive it. Why? Well, partly because it gives eternal perspective. So if we were to look today at Harrisonburg and identify the richest, most powerful people, they would seem really, really important. But if we were to zoom out time-wise until we were, you know, in the perspective of eternity, James says that from that perspective, that rich, powerful person is about as significant as a seasonal weed. Right? Because though they are powerful today, they will pass away, and the world will continue, and it will forget them. Right? And so that should bring humility, having that perspective. But there's something else that should bring humility because of the gospel. See, a rich and powerful person who decides that they want to follow this Jesus and receive this message, they have to admit that what James said about them is true, that their innermost self produces evil thoughts that they are tempted by, that they desire. And they have to admit that their only hope is a gift that they cannot earn and they cannot buy. It might be the only thing they cannot buy if they are wealthy and powerful enough, but this is one thing, the most important thing they cannot earn, they cannot buy, and that brings humility. So, if you are someone who, because of your circumstances, are in comparison to the people around you in some way, elevated, important, wealthy, you need this message. And it may be you guys are college students. Not many college students have a great deal of cash. Some of, you, some of you might, but not many do. But there may be other things. There may be, you may feel superior to other people because of your superior morality or because of your ethnicity or because seniors, again, maybe of the job offer you received recently or maybe of your incredible talents and abilities that surpass the people around you or your popularity or a position of leadership at work or even in crew. And if so, this message is for you. But James also says something to the poor and lowly Christian. He says they too are supposed to boast. But rather than boast in their humility, although they should also be humble, he says they should boast in their exaltation. You see, in Christ, because of the gospel, the poorest, most lowly Christian by the worldly standards, is wearing a crown. Do you see that? They're wearing the crown of life. And who wears crowns but royalty? And if you become a follower of Jesus, you become a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. You're, you have the dignity, value, and worth of a king in the eyes of the only eyes that ultimately matter, God. 
You see, there are no second-class Christians. And I want to acknowledge that this is a truth that actually probably, there's a lot of things in the Bible that sort of go against the grain of our culture, but this is actually one that I think our culture kind of likes to some extent. We, have, we live in this democracy, this meritocracy. It's not a perfect democracy or perfect meritocracy, right? But we generally like the idea that a rich person and a poor person have equal value, worth, dignity, right? Um, now, we don't, always are, we don't always live up to that, that desire to see those, people, those things happen. We kind of like that idea. But this was an entirely revolutionary concept in the first century. Uh, there, was, there, was no, there was no sense in which wealthy, powerful people were encouraged to be humble, right? So this really was um, revolutionary. So what's the, what's the context to you? Well, what's the application to you? Well, in order to identify the application, you have to identify which person in the story you most relate to. Are you someone who tends toward self-importance or self-loathing? Do you tend to, toward self-importance or self-loathing? Or are you kind of like me when I was 23, 24 and found myself isolate, oscillating? oscillating between the two pretty constantly, right? Where one, one day I'd feel like my head would be this big, and the next day I'd be about this small in my mind. The gospel has something for you here. If you tend towards self-importance, you've got to realize the, the difficult truth that in God's economy, there is nothing particularly special about you. And in fact, in God's economy, you needed to be rescued, and you need to be given a gift in order to, to overcome the sin that is natural to you. And that is humbling. Even, and every good thing you have, James says here, is something that's given to you by God. Even your, even your abilities and your, your intelligence, that's given to you by God. Even your work ethic. You didn't ask to be born into the family you were born into. That was, that was a gift. If, on the other hand, you, t- you tend towards self-loathing, or maybe another word here is shame, if you relate more to the, 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 the version of me that was in that meeting who felt like I was about an inch tall, the gospel says this to you. You, you, you are a son, if you have trusted in Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of the king of the universe, and you have the crown to prove it. Let me give you one example of how this plays out, and we'll be done. That meeting I was in where I was serving coffee to the guy my age who everyone knew was a prodigy, right? Everyone wanted to see succeed. My own boss and mentor was more encouraging to him, and again, not not, not, not these meant anything wrong, but more encouraging to him than, than he'd ever been to me, than anyone had ever been to me. And walking out of that room thinking, man, I wish someone would say that to me. I wish people would think of me in that same way. Amazingly, by the power of, of the Holy Spirit working in me, I was able to remember the truth of the gospel in that moment. And I remember walking out of that room and praying to God, saying, God, thank you that you don't have favorites. Thank you that you don't love Brian more than you love me. That you don't look at his resume and think of him as a more important person than me. You don't look at his talents and abilities and think of him more highly than me. But rather, you think of us in the same plane and you think of me as a beloved son who you're proud of, 
who you desire to have around, who you delight in. And you do that because of who you made me in Christ and by what you accomplished through Christ's death on the cross. So whatever you tend toward, the self-important in the world's eyes or the, the lowly, the gospel is something very, very important. The 